On this episode of China Unscripted, China is facing a serious water shortage. It's wrecking the environment and local industry. So investors had better watch out. Welcome to China Unscripted. I'm Chris Chappell. I'm Shelley Chong. And I'm Matt Ganesta. Joining us today is Andrew Au. He's the head of climate risk for North America for Tata Consultancy Services. Andrew, thanks for joining us today. Good to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. I just I just like to start this off by all of us having a nice sip of water. <laughs> water is really great. <laughs> okay, fine. Yeah, our bodies. We really need water, don't we? So, what is this water crisis that China is facing? So it's it's a big one, and it's been brewing for a long time. Brewing.、Uh, the thing is.、Uh, Water is needed for a surprising and bewildering array, array of human activities,、uh, not all of which are、um, readily apparent. But for slip and slides, slip and slides,、uh, yes. Well, th- those I think are some of the more obvious ones. I'm personally always spend my time on a slip and slide when I can.、Um, but the、uh, the manufacturing and power sectors are huge consumers. Agriculture is a huge consumer. And all these problems worldwide are really being exacerbated by、uh, climate-related changes、uh, that, that we're seeing, and so all of those have been building up,、uh, and um, it's it's、uh, getting dire in certain parts of the world, and China is is among those that's most、uh, at risk. Can you give us a, an idea of of where where the situation is now? Like people still have water to drink, right? How bad is it? So. There is water to drink,、um, and the the thing is that water for home consumption is actually not one of the largest sources、uh, of consumption in China, or frankly, in, in most places.、Um, in China, sixty percent of the water consumption is used by the industrial sector, and agriculture is also a really big consumer. So、um, in local areas, you know where you may have shortages. You know we in the U.S. occasionally encounter these where you're asked, particularly out west, you're asked to take shorter showers or not water your lawn and things like that. That's when things get really extreme, usually for a short period of time.、Uh, but that's not really where the main draws on the water demand are, right? And so you have a place like China that's such a huge industrial economy, uh, and um, It really has taken this water use for granted in how it's constructed its economy, and when you combine that with the sheer number of people in China and the size of the economy, there's actually less fresh water per capita in China than in even some of the most arid regions of the world, which is which is pretty astonishing. And by UN definitions, China is actually、uh, facing acute water shortages by that per capita metric. So you, know, you talk about. Industry, right? So, like, let's say you're manufacturing—I don't know—a a slip and slide.、Uh, like, what? How? How does water? Like, I'm—I'm I'm just not picturing water being used in this like machinery to make slip and slides or 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 microchips or whatever it is. Sure. So,、um, look, I'm—I'm I'm not an engineer,、uh, nor necessarily an expert in in. The finer points of manufacturing. So this is a, a little out of my sweet spot, but there are some types of uses、uh, for water.、Um, one is simply as an input for raw materials, right? And so
you have things like uh, grain um, for food. You have cotton uh, for textiles. You have uh, other kinds of um, uh, metals and construction materials. Uh, almost anything you could think of that's used to make stuff uh, tends to require a lot of water uh, in that initial production or refinement. Uh, so that's a big one. Uh, you also have many manufacturing processes themselves that require water. Um, and that really just is very specific uh, to a, a given industry. But um, water is very uh, commonly used for cooling. Uh, it's used for washing. It's uh, used for um, purifying or filtering. And so there are all kinds of different functions in a wide range of manufacturing facilities that are extremely highly dependent on water. You know, even though, you know, how you manufacture slip and slide, I couldn't tell you. I don't know exactly what the water demand of uh, that slide is. Um, but uh, certainly the stuff that's going into it is requiring a lot of water. So, so how did China get to the situation where it has less water per capita than like desert countries? Is it, was it like a drought? Was it bad government policy? Was it a government caused drought? So I'd say it's, it's uh, a bit of all of the above, right? I think that, um, so going back to the statistic that I mentioned that 65% of China's water use is from industry, right? Does um, that include agriculture or is agriculture on? No, it does not include agriculture. Uh, so agriculture is separate and on top of that. In places like the U.S. where you have, you know, entire states in the Great Plains that are primarily uh centered around the agri industrial agricultural economy, um, that may be the biggest draw uh, on, on water demand, such as in the uh, Oglala. Yeah, and the good news is that our manufacturing in this country has been hauled out and sent to China. So we don't have to worry about that problem. That is true. That is true. Uh, and even, still, even at our height uh, of manufacturing in the U.S., I don't think we were ever quite the, um, the world's manufacturing hub um, to the degree that China's. Even in the mid-20th century, there was a more, I think, diversified economy, whereas China not only uh, has this comparative advantage that it's developed, but it's also a product of government policy, right? That it has invested um, in, uh, in infrastructure and manufacturing uh, capability rather than in the consumer economy, right? Uh, and there are a number of reasons for that those sort of political economic realities. But the fact remains that the economy is, is heavily built around manufacturing capability and industry. What that means is that is so dominant uh, that it has in recent decades dramatically increased the demand um, for those freshwater resources. Now you put that on top of the fact that particularly the Northern China Plain uh, is a fairly arid region um, and uh, has limited natural rainfall and um, uh, and freshwater uh, sources from from rivers and lakes. And you have the fact that China is home to a huge number of people. So simply any um, per capita metric is a reflection of that um, you know really big denominator. So, what, what that means is you have these various different stresses, right, and, and pressures, and that has really been accelerated by um, the 
industrial policy of China, um, the the real expansion of the economy very rapidly, and um, and other factors like like climate change. So it's kind of a perfect storm. When you talk about water being used for manufacturing, after that water goes into manufacturing, is can it be recycled? Can it be renewed? Or is it kind of like it, it, it is there a way to recover some of that? You know, it, it depends on the use, right? Um, where water is used for cooling and there's no degrading of the quality of water, it simply needs to, you know, come back to normal um, ambient temperature after its use. Uh, it very much can be reused, uh, and that uh, can be something for which, um, you know, plants are designed. Um, most plants are not designed that way because they were um, built uh, for a world of um, uh, ample water uh, where you're not kind of optimizing for scarcity, right? You're optimizing for, for price and, and performance efficiency. Right. So that's really something that is, is a problem all over the world and needs to change. Right. But uh, in some cases, you can reuse the water, but you'd have to retrofit your facilities to do so. And in other places, the water is actually degraded. Right. It's polluted. It's salinated. It's uh, somehow uh, less pure or fit for use after it has gone through its process, right? Imagine using for mining, right? Or for washing coal or something like that. The water's really dirty uh, when it's done. And sometimes that it can be then cleaned and purified through water treatment, though that itself is expensive and energy intensive. Most often, you know, you use some basic pollution remediation methods and then it is allowed to drain off into the nearest body of water, right? And that's by design. So that... Is, is something that fundamentally doesn't really account for the scarcity that China and many other places are now experiencing. Yeah, I don't really have a sense of China being a place that's really... About water reuse? Water reuse, recycling, uh, cutting back on pollution. So, so are they basically not taking these steps? Well, to transform a large industrial facility, let alone an entire economy, right, around new principles of water preservation and conservation isn't something that happens overnight. Um, so in, in some cases, it's, it's happening. Uh, I think there has not really been a concerted national push um, for water conservation, in part because it's the kind of out of sight, out of mind problem that has driven a lot of natural resource um, challenges. Um, and, you know, it's just something that human society is not very good at, right? Without picking on the Chinese, um, there, you know, not many societies that do manage their water demand very well, frankly. Um, and, um, places that have water scarcity are reaching up, you know, um, bumping up against these natural limits first, right? Some places like Israel have for many decades or practically all of its existence uh, had have been building an industrial economy uh, in, an, in an environment of acute water scarcity. Places like that that had to optimize for water scarcity from day one have done better. Most places in the world are not in that category and they are having to relearn 
how to function, how, you know, to build their economy in a way that that is is really uh, dealing with this constraint. So if, if China were to continue on the trajectory it's on now, what would the situation look like 50 years from now, 100 years from now, assuming nothing changes? Well, I don't think we have to look 50 or 100 years. I would say, you know, 50 to 100 days might do the job, right? Um, Over just the last couple of years. So I don't mean to be alarmist, right? I mean, China is not like people are not going to die of thirst, uh, you know, in in 2023 in in China. Um, But even looking at the last couple of years of where they already are and what they've experienced has shown that the drought conditions, uh, you know, limited rainfall, often ex- exacerbated by heat waves, um, are leading to uh, pretty acute water shortages um, that are, in some cases, leading to direct curtailment of water allocations for the manufacturing sector, and are also having knock-on effects for the power sector, right? So electricity generation which in most of its forms requires a lot of water, and I can talk about that separately. Um, the water crisis is leading to a power crisis because if you're, all your power plants or most of your power plants require water to function, no water means no power. And then no power creates its own set of problems, right? In some cases that compound the water issues. So um, you're seeing curtailments in the water, in the water sector. You're seeing curtailments in the power sector, and both of those have been directed by government policy to impact industry first. So you're seeing furloughs and mandatory closures of of industry already in the last couple of years. That's sort of the tip of the spear, right? That some sectors get hit first, and that's already happening, right? Um, There's just not enough to go around. And so uh, you essentially then are in a world of rationing. And then it's often a matter of government policy, as well as, you know, constraints of infrastructure and geography uh, to figure out who gets to use the water that's left. That's what happened this past summer, right? When it was, there was like massive heat wave in parts of like Sichuan, Chengdu, like there, I remember them, you remember the photos of like they shut the subway down or like they weren't powering it with like they didn't have the lights on so people were riding the subway in the dark during the yeah, heat wave that's right. but i also ironically remember the the subways that were caught in the floods oh yeah that was a different time well, well yeah, yeah like this is the weird thing that's happening there is like in some places way too much water all at once and in some places there's just not enough but maybe the communist party can you know distribute all the resources equally take water from the south and move it to the north if only there was some kind of, you know, water project that could handle that. Well, that is a good question. What about the, the what is what it, is it South, South North? North Water Project? Yeah. yeah. So there are a couple really big water projects, mega infrastructure projects. And um, there are a couple of issues here. Um, one is the fact that the amount of water that's needed to really make a dent in the problem is mind-bogglingly enormous, right? So uh, you need a lot of water, right? Um, And getting it across hundreds, if not thousands of kilometers of very difficult terrain, often difficult substrate, you know, building these pipelines, uh, these are often 
unprecedented engineering challenges, let alone the cost. Um, on top of that, you have the fact that southern China, um, which is where they're looking to draw the water from, is now having its own uh, water shortages, um, many of those driven by climate change. Those are newer developments by and large. Uh, those are, of course, exacerbated by the very rapid economic growth in China, which has been uh, heavily concentrated in many cases in the southern part of the country. So anything that requires water, anything that's you know bringing in more people, um, whether it's the Pearl River Delta, you know Guangzhou, uh, Guangxi, you know pick pick your southern region. Um, there is increasing demand on the resources they have, as well as these droughts uh, that are becoming more acute in the south of the country, which is where that water is supposed to come from, right? To to slake the thirst of the north. So it's, it's an unproven premise that these massive water-shifting infrastructure projects are um, capable of, of solving the problem. I do want to ask about hydroelectric power, actually, because um, it's been so much a part of um, China's identity in a lot of ways. Like, my grandfather worked on a hydroelectric dam, and, like, there was so much like the three gorges like being like such a huge dam and like like the government was you know trumpeting as this huge achievement and yeah it was very much like a cultural thing like this is the communist party struggling against heaven and earth and creating this new new china and just you know like being able to build these huge feats of engineering right like these dams all along i mean there's the also there's also more than 2000 smaller dams i think across the country yeah so lots of lots of dams. How does that fit into the the picture of the water crisis? Yeah, so um, you're absolutely right. Hydropower is uh, a huge part of the power mix. It's a building block of the national economy. As you were mentioning, it's it's sort of part of the cultural identity of of modern uh, you know communist era China uh, that. You know, you have kind of the 20th century industrial mentality of conquering nature, right, or harnessing nature in the service of um, of industry, right, and, and human society. And that's largely uh, been an accomplishment, right, of China as well as as other industrialized com uh, uh, countries is, is really um, taking advantage of these resources through feats of engineering. And those are undoubtedly success stories, right? The Three Gorges Dam and these other giant new dams that China is still developing and bringing online, the Baihatan project, are, you know, 10 gigawatt project. These are among the very, very largest uh, hydropower projects ever undertaken in the world, anywhere. And uh, they have been successes. Um, there are, the, the, the book isn't closed though. Right, because even having built a dam uh, and gotten it to function, you still need regular flows of water to replenish the dam uh, so that it continues to serve its purpose. And there are also impacts of damming these major rivers uh, downstream. Now, in China, the dams were often quite purposely constructed to 
prevent the devastating flooding that would previously happen in, in the Yangtze Basin and other places, right? So there are benefits that come from harnessing and controlling these natural forces, right? But they also can have adverse effects. And those adverse effects, you know, such as, you know, you don't have enough silt, um, you know, that, that then is sort of a natural fertilizer, right, for um, uh, farmland uh, that's, that's on the riverbanks. You uh, can uh, exacerbate the um, uh, water availability issues that may exist seasonally or during times of drought downstream, right, because you've restricted the flow. And you may also have issues in the body of water itself, right? Um, and so, you know, silt can build up in dams and you need to have a certain uh, amount of the water body, uh, the reservoir behind the dam filled for the dam to actually function uh, as a hydropower source. The U.S. West, by the way, is also really suffering from this. Hoover Dam, uh, you know, is is having a catastrophic crisis and it may lose its ability to, to generate... Uh, hydropower this year uh, because of an acute drought. And so these are these are ongoing issues that um, that uh, China is facing at Three Gorges and, and, and other dams, right? So it's both, uh, I would say it's more a symptom of the problem, uh, its vulnerability than a cause, um, because the water still is is usable, right? Um, however, actually, there, there are also some ways that hydroelectric dams can consume water, which may be a little counterintuitive, but when you dam a river, right, and you create a lake, uh, the water tends to get warmer uh, because it's just sitting there rather than flowing. And it also evaporates more. And so you are actually using or, you know, losing more of the water to evaporation often when you have a lot of these dams. So there is sort of a contribution to the water crisis, but more, I would say, the hydropower sector is is a part of the, the the power generation vulnerability that I was talking about. Right? You have the other sectors, uh, other types of power generation also demand water, which I can talk about. Uh, hydro is obviously you know a sector that is entirely dependent on water, and so you know your dam isn't full, you can't use your hydropower dam resource. So what about other types of power? So China also has uh, coal power and they have nuclear power. Um, the people's power. Right. So so how are those affected by this water crisis? Well, everyone knows the people's power is unlimited, right? So that's not a problem. That's, that's right? true. <laughs> um, so hydropower, um, you know, just to kind of give a sense of, of how enormous China's uh, power sector is. Um, so China has 350 gigawatts of, of hydropower, um, which is a giant fraction. I don't have the exact number, but I think it's maybe nearly half of uh, global uh, hydropower capacity. And that is only about 16% of China's overall power generation, right? So it's a, it's a, it's a chunk, right? It's a slice of the pie. But it's actually far from the biggest slice of the pie. The biggest slice of the pie remains coal. Ah, beautiful coal. Beautiful coal. Um, you know, thermal power, which is coal as well as natural gas or or oil or you know any other fossil fuel that you're burning 
to, to t- turn a turbine and create electricity, electricity. That still accounts for about 70% of China's current power output. So when you think about where is China's power coming from, the first thing you should always be thinking about is coal, right? Coal is also very dependent on water. Why is it dependent on water? It's dependent on water at all stages of the process for mining, for washing coal, often for transporting coal from the mine to its end industrial or power use, uh, often on rivers, um, on barges. And then it's also used for cooling. Um, So in thermal power plants where uh, parts of the plant get really, really hot, the way that you maintain their function is through cooling. Now, there are some ways that that can be done with air, um, but because air cooling is less efficient and more expensive, most plants have been built in a manner to be water-cooled. And in a world where water is abundant, you just, you know, sit your plant on the nearest river or seacoast or lake, and voila, you have your water. Um, The problem is when you have a water crisis, then you are literally left high and dry, right? And so these thermal power plants uh, also have a direct knock-on impact during the water crisis. And so in extreme cases, the power output of these coal plants has to be curtailed just like the hydropower is curtailed. And so those actually compound and become an even bigger problem. Uh, And that's even further compounded by the fact that if it coincides with, say, a heat wave, everyone turns up their air conditioner and the demand for power goes way up just as the supply is cratering, right? And that's often the kind of thing that leads to blackouts or to failures on the power grid uh, due to these environmental factors. And... um, it is it is both a chronic and an acute challenge that China is dealing with, um, and and it's it's a challenge that's not going away. Now, what, given that that so much of China's energy is produced by coal, and that coal requires water for washing and mining, now you mentioned the the, the water used for cooling can often be cycled back, but if you're washing coal, like that, just creates polluted water, right? That's right. Uh, what what I mean, happens to that? Quite literally, dirty fact, right? That um, there are all kinds of industrial uses and you know extractive industry uses of water that result in polluted supply, um, and you know often it just uh, it goes into the nearest body of water um, or some kind of containment facility. And that is sort of the very unsatisfying answer of where polluted water goes, right? There are environmental regulations that require remediation or treatment in many cases. Those rules are sometimes followed, sometimes they're not. Uh, and then the water is uh, not only essentially consumed or you know useless after that, but of course it can also pollute the environment, right? And then cause problems in whatever locale Uh, that water has been dumped. Mm, So it can pollute the soil too. Exactly. So this is really win-win-win because coal's polluting the air and the water and the soil. It's really kind of covering all the bases there. Well, if if you're looking for the uh, pollution trifecta, you know, you found it with with coal, right? (laughs) It has its dirty reputation for a reason. It's, It's great because, you know, since China is a developing country, despite being the second largest economy in the world, 
according to their Paris, uh, Paris Climate Agreement, they get to actually burn more coal and increase until 2030. And then maybe they'll start to cut back. Yeah, until they change the deal. Yeah. So yeah. are we headed to uh, Dune, Arrakis, Desert <laughs> Planet? I was actually thinking Water World, but that's like, like a, a totally different premise. Isn't that the opposite? Yeah, but the pro the problem isn't like the 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 ocean levels on the Pacific coast of China might be rising slightly the way that it is globally, right? But that's salt water, so you can't do anything with that. You have to. I mean, we're talking about a freshwater crisis, not a saltwater crisis, right? Um, I mean. It, it depends on the use, right? Uh, in most cases, it is a freshwater crisis. Uh, certainly, the oceans are rising, not falling, right? So, uh, you know, anything that's on the coast uh, that's using um, seawater is probably less of a threat. Uh, but it, it, uh, there are some caveats to that. Um, first of all, um, there are limited uses uh, for seawater. Right, it can be used for cooling, uh, but it certainly doesn't substitute for many freshwater uses like uh, irrigation, um, certainly household use, things like that. Right, you're not going to use seawater for that. So you, it has to be a usage that that seawater can can fulfill. Even the cooling issue uh, can be a problem because uh, this is less an issue with the ocean. It tends to happen more with rivers and lakes, but. Um, if the water warms up, say during a, a heat wave, it no longer has the same capability to cool, right? Um, and so, you know, if you're trying to cool something off by dumping a, bu a bucket of hot water on it, it's not going to do the job that a bucket of cold water would. And so it happened actually in many of the um, uh, European countries that were impacted by the heat wave last summer that... Um, uh, nuclear power stations, which are also uh, re rely on water to cool, many of them that are sited on rivers uh, actually had to cut back their production um, because the water wasn't cool enough to cool uh, the plants. Uh, and you can have the same thing with coal. So you have temperature-related vulnerabilities even when you may actually still have water to use. And so that, in some cases, can also impact uh, coastal seawater. Now, uh, speaking of coastal seawater, so like you mentioned Israel, that that has a a really acute that not acute they have a, an, an ongoing uh, water shortage, right? That they've had for you know seventy years, uh, I get, or probably forever. Uh, and Israel uses a lot of desalinization, which is basically taking salt water or brackish water, uh, removing the salt through some process, and then that becomes uh, potable water or drinkable water. So exactly. Yeah. So how about China? Like China's got plenty of coasts. There's, there's still lots of salt water. Why not just solve the, the freshwater shortage by building lots of desalinization plants? It's a great question. Um, the answer is in part that China is doing that, right? Um, there is some effort to increase desalination, uh, as a source of fresh water. Um, the problem is there are uh, some limits to that. Um, I, uh, statistics that I've seen indicate there are about 20,000 desalination plants globally. Um, the output of all of those global plants uh, would be enough to provide only about 
6% of China's water needs. So the scale of desalination that would have to be done to make a serious dent in the problem is, is just astronomical, right? It's, it's, it doesn't work well at large scale, right? Uh, you can do it in small countries or in cities, um, particularly if you're using that water use for, you know, residential, uh, you know, household or office consumption. Because as I mentioned, those are much smaller sources of water demand than industry or agriculture, right? Um, so you have that problem, right? It's simply the scale uh, problem is is big. There are other problems as well. It's really expensive. Um, it happens to um, generate water only on the coast, right? So that it can be then difficult to transport that water to where it needs to go for its use, right? It still may not, you know, your coastal water that you've desalinated isn't going to help you uh, address your water scarcity in Anhui, right? Or Sichuan, right? <laughs> the water's not in the right place. The uh, And one additional problem is the fact that desalination is incredibly power intensive, right? Electricity intensive. It takes a lot of energy. And so China is already facing a power crisis, right? So the question is, are they really going to divert their existing power capacity to desalination when they already don't have enough power to go around. So you, you're, you know, you're sort of robbing Peter to pay Paul if you take that approach because it then exacerbates other problems they have that are, you know, interlinked. Right. So desalination needs power, and power needs water. Yeah, this is bad. <laughs> Although what's what's worse is that I realized that I was calling it desalinization when it's actually just desalination. Well, no, so, it's, so, it's it's both. You can desalinize water. That's think, right. You know, it's both. It's both. It's <laughs> absolutely I, both. I've, I've, I've said desalinize too. So either either we're both wrong together and, and you're in my company, whether that's good or bad. <laughs> there are multiple ways to say that, in which case you're in the clear. But at any rate, it, it's a, it's a, it could be a solution so people don't die of thirst, but it's not going to solve the industry problem at all. And it's probably not even enough to really do that much with agriculture. Precisely. So, Precisely. okay. So basically that's not going to work. China's screwed. Uh. <laughs> well, it does seem like it's coming to a head where like it's going to affect food production and China already has food production issues. It's going to affect power production, which China already has power issues. Uh, it's going to affect industry, could cause economic issues. It seems like this is just creating a whole host of problems that at any point could just implode. I mean, but I mean, it's not going to be... It's not like a tornado, right? They they see this coming. They see it coming, um, but you know, turning the Titanic is hard, right? They have their current economic model, they have their current industry, their current infrastructure, their current population, and those are things that are not readily changed at scale very quickly, right? So while it may not hit as a crisis between today and tomorrow, you still can have a seasonal drought, right? That becomes very, very acute over the span of say several months and can dramatically accelerate, right? The, the urgency of this kind of a crisis. And you simply can't adjust the supply levers fast enough, right? The only thing you can do is curtail demand and you do that with rationing, right? Or cuts. And so, 
that is what we've already seen during uh, scattered stretches. Um, and unfortunately, those are problems that are likely to get a lot worse before uh, the government or anyone else is able to make them better, right? I mean, there have been efforts to make industry um, more uh, water efficient, to promote water conservation, to um, increase the, the price of water. You know, water in many places is either free or heavily subsidized, which is nice if you're a user, but it removes the incentive to conserve, right? And so that is an incentive that often needs to be put in place. Uh, and it's painful, but it then sends an economic signal that aligns the incentives of the users with the societal need to cut back, right? Uh, the problem is those kinds of things are extremely politically unpopular, and they're very hard to do uh, without a lot of pain if you do it in a very short amount of time. And, you know, there are very few governments that uh, have succeeded in doing that kind of thing, right? I mean, one of the secrets for Israel, which we've mentioned again, is just everyone knew from the beginning that there was no water. So you had to build from the outset uh, with a mentality that water is really scarce. Otherwise, you got to move someplace else. In places where you're used to consuming a lot of water, you know, just it's human psychology that changing behavior or just shifting an economic model is extremely difficult both, you know, psychologically and politically. And then you also have to retool your whole economy, right? Or your whole society around infrastructure that recognizes that scarcity and operates under those constraints. Also, I feel like communist China is more of a society that's like, they do better with rationing than they do with like free market price approaches to, to incentives. Like that's just kind of the what they're used to for the last many decades. So the rationing approach, you know, solves the problem in the short term, right? It keeps you from having total chaos when the government can step in and say, you know, you, you're getting water or power and you, you have to shut down until the crisis is over, right? So you have kind of a conductor or quarterback, you know, pick your analogy, who's calling the plays. Uh, and so... On, on a superficial level, that solves the short-term acute problem. Um, but even that, of course, comes at a high cost uh, when you are um, preferencing, say, household consumption over industry. But what happens when you shut down industry, right? It means your people are out of work. They're furloughed. It means you're not meeting your international con contractual obligations. It means... Uh, you know, uh, you're not generating uh, foreign trade, right? And and so uh, part of the reason that um, many companies and societies globally are diversifying their supply chains away from China, the factory of the world, is because of these natural resource constraints, right? Now, there are, of course, a host of other reasons, you know, political, economic you know, what have you, that's maybe subject for another conversation. Um, but one of those reasons is because um, natural resources are so strained from decades of unbridled growth, right, that are now kind of, those problems are coming home to roost, that when you have the world's biggest industrial uh, base, uh, that has a major environmental impact, right? Um, and 
you can maybe mask the effects of that for some period of time, uh, but you can't mask them forever, particularly as you continue to grow. And so that's a problem of, for which China's on the front lines, though, of course, it's not a unique problem to China. And other reg- regions are grappling with that, too. Right. So, like, take Apple, for example. You know, Apple has recently been diversifying its manufacturing, I think, to India and Brazil. Uh, and for, for certain laptops, I think they're even doing it in Texas, uh, yet another country. Uh, and like, <laughs> I'm still I, I, Republic forever. Hey, Texas. I, I assume that Apple was doing it because they were upset about the genocide of Uyghurs in Xinjiang, but maybe it also has to do with other factors. I think there are a lot of factors. I don't even know if the 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 Xinjiang situation is is front of the list, right? You know, they just had all. I mean, these... I'm kidding. It's probably not on their list. Uh, yeah. I mean, oh, 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 I you, the... yeah. So sorry. I my my <laughs> my um, antennae for for. Um, uh, sarcasm are, are sometimes a little challenged on Fridays. No, so, I, I apologize because none of my jokes are funny. <laughs> I, I do think that the U.S. government did make that a problem for Apple, though, with their um, like their forced labor bill. Yeah. So that probably moved it up. I'm I'm glad I got my iPhone back when I could still get it with you know slave labor. There you go. Uh, anyway, go on. So there's a there's a water manufacturing, et cetera. So how would that affect a company like Apple? Well, um, a lot of high-end electronics, uh, again, believe it or not, um, the manufacturing does require a lot of water, right? So I don't know exactly um, the nuances of, of how water is used in some of those high-tech um, facilities, but uh, suffice it to say that they are also impacted by... Uh, a water crisis. And so that is one of many, many supply chain issues that uh, are causing disruptions, right? I mean, you have COVID, you have labor unrest, you have trade wars and things like that. Um, but you also have these natural um, uh, resource constraints and um, natural disasters that are also playing a major role. And in general, it's a it's an object lesson for the need to diversify supply chains, right? Because you don't want to have all of your supply chain to be in a region that's hit by a drought that then, you know, has a water crisis and a power crisis. You have to have some supply chain diversification to try to protect from from that kind of thing. Do you think that's why Elon Musk diversified into Twitter? (laughs) Well, um, yeah, you know, certainly uh, opinions and words are things that are seldom in short supply, right? So I, I think that we're not going to have, uh, uh, or, you know, emojis, right? We're not going to have an emoji deficit anytime soon. So maybe it was a smart play. Yeah, which is because of Tesla in China. In China. Yeah, I think Tesla is getting hit pretty badly by a lot of this stuff. In yeah, China. well, I mean, it, the Tesla is not just hit by manufacturing issues. They're also hit by being ripped off by, you know, China's homegrown electric vehicle companies that are doing it for cheaper. So that's a whole that's a whole other issue. But so I'm curious, like, what, what can China do about this? Because, like, I know with their food shortage – you know, they're hoarding most of the world's grain. When they completely overfished their oceans, they went abroad and 
overfished other people's oceans. Like, is this going to be a situation where they're like t- taking water from just other parts of the world? I, that doesn't seem realistic. It, like, I think this is like the North South Water Project problem. It's not really that easy to, you can't easily get like a water pipeline from yeah, Russia w- or something wars. like that. Or, or can you? So, um, these are actually good questions. Um, the, I think the answers are, are, you know, several fold. Um, in some cases, of course, they can try to, you know, dam up and divert water from these international rivers, right? Like the Mekong, uh, you know, most of which start up in the Himalayas and then, uh, flow through the Southwest, you know, Kunming and, you know, that region, and then out into, into South Asia or Southeast Asia, they can potentially try to tap those rivers more and, and divert them, right? Which wouldn't make them a lot of friends in the region, but would potentially help address some of those, those needs. Other strategies include uh, outsourcing, um, you know, what's sometimes called embodied water, right? So instead of making something at home with your own water, you buy the product from someone else, you import it, and you make them use their water, right? And China does a lot of this um, by um, exporting its agricultural um, uh, capacity, right? So um, by importing, say, animal feed, right, it means they are then relying on Brazil's water or the U.S.'s water to produce that animal feed that they then buy, right? Or just the actual food itself, right? Um, produce or, or, or anything else, right? Meat, right? Even meat, you know, has a, a major water cost, right? How much water went into the, you know, did the cows drink, right? Or went into the production of the food that the cows ate, right? These are not trivial issues. And China has done a lot of that, actually, and they lease agricultural land in other countries uh, like Russia, places in Africa, places in the U.S. I mean, you name it, actually. That is a, a an explicit strategy. Now, of course, it cuts both ways because you may then reduce your demand for water at home, but you're then increasing your dependence on these agricultural products um, and, and their importation, Right. So, you know, you still are dependent on something somewhere, uh, but it is one way to manage the, the, the water crisis, right, is to, is to then, uh, you know, offshore those forms of productions that are water intensive. Yeah, I actually, I understand that California exports a lot of alfalfa to China, which is great because California doesn't have any water shortages. <laughs> exactly. Well, that, that, that <laughs> I caught the sarcasm there, and, and yeah. it was very well placed. And uh, and yes, the California water crisis is a is a link topic that uh, is also worthy of a of a of a uh, podcast. Um, U.S. has plenty of its own issues: California, Texas, and, and elsewhere. Uh, so uh, China is far from alone, but the the scale and urgency uh, is is um, is unmatched by most places. Uh, so that's why it's such an issue for China. And frankly, for the rest of the world, right? The, the 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 converse of China buying its its products from the rest of the world that embody water is, of course, the rest of the world is dependent on Chinese manufacturing and production, which uses Chinese water. So the China water crisis becomes everyone's water crisis, right? Uh, through the supply chain connections. 
Yeah. So, I mean, I understand that, like, they could alleviate some of the agricultural pressure on water. But if they start to, um, like, try to export that manufacturing, like, that basically means they're not as valuable. Like, their economy is built around, like, this type of, like, manufacturing. So how do you... Is that a possibility for them to let some of that go to other places or do they like they have to restructure how they uh, manage the economy, basically? hundred percent. So, um, you know, I think it's a it's a multi pronged strategy, right? China has many reasons for needing to diversify its economy. Um, and, um, you know, the the natural resource demands of the manufacturing oriented economy is only one of them. Right. Um, and they have, you know, it seemed like at the beginning of, um, you know, president Xi's tenure that they were committed to that kind of structural reform. And we've seen over time that it hasn't really happened. Right. Because it's hard. Um, it's hard. uh, And, um, uh, it's politically difficult. It's economically difficult. It's difficult with the political system that China has um, to have a consumer-oriented economy, um, and it it also um, <clears throat> is just something that takes a long time. So, in, in the meantime, while they're trying to diversify the economy, they need to employ conservation. And so, there's the smart way to do it, which is to, you know, do more with less. Right? You build facilities that are optimized for efficiency. Uh, and then there are the hard ways to do it, which is where you start cutting people off and rationing. And unfortunately, uh, cutting people off and rationing is often the only thing that works in the short term. And so if the problem, if, you know, the onset of the problem comes faster than the solutions, then it's going to be really painful. And there's going to be a lot of that sort of crisis management mentality to address it. Yeah, I imagine it's probably going to be especially bad now because, it seems the indications from like the policy speeches and things that are coming out of the uh, Communist Party in the wake of zero COVID, um, they're cutting back on a lot of things that they said that they were going to do. And it seems to be that they're having money issues uh, because of how badly the economy did uh, in the last three years. So I imagine that like that's only going to have a huge impact on how much they're able to do to handle something like a water crisis too. Undoubtedly, you know, there are a lot of, uh, you know, economic headwinds in in China right now, right? There's sort of the recovery from the zero COVID policy, as you said, you know, there's the, the slow motion, uh, you know, real estate bubble deflating, you have, uh, you know, huge amounts of, of uh, debt, public and private in China. So, you know, there are a, a lot of issues that Frankly, many of those plague the West as well, right? You have the demographic crisis. Um, you know, then now the China's workforce is shrinking; its population may begin shrinking as early as this year. Um, and so, these are major structural issues that create headwinds for investing in you know the 21st century economy. And uh, it's these are hard problems. Yeah. Now. Uh, BlackRock has recently suggested that we triple our investments in China. Would you say that's enough or should we really quadruple them? (laughs) 
Um, well, it depends how money you've got, how much money you've got. I'd say quintuple them, right? If you, if you're rolling in cash, um, especially no, if you're if you're rolling in other people's cash, <laughs> if you're rolling in like other people's, Rock? that's the best money to spend. Yeah. You know, open the spigots. Amen. Because there's not water coming out of those spigots anytime soon. Uh, so, I mean, obviously, it's, I think it's pretty clear that like if China's manufacturing collapses, the impact that would have globally. But what other, what are some other ways that China's water crisis will impact the globe? So, I think some of the um, disruptions that we've seen in trade and supply chains from you have the trade war that Trump started, you have COVID. You have the Russia-Ukraine crisis. You have political tensions over Taiwan uh, and other issues. All of these have kind of um, put kinks in global supply chains, right? Um, and led to disruptions and shortages uh, and things like that. And I think that these um, natural resource problems uh, that uh, will periodically constrain or even cripple um, parts of industry are um, a sign that these supply chain issues and frankly inflation issues as well are not going to go away. Um, they're likely to persist and in many cases even get worse, right? So I think we are just in a new world where, you know, the blue skies sort of um, – uh, you know, just in time delivery of uh, anything you've ordered uh, is um, perhaps a thing of the past, right? Um, because there are so many of these these you know crises lurking, uh, many of them interrelated. So um, I think that's a challenge. There's also been a lot of speculation about the the political blowback uh, of this kind of a crisis, right? Um, some people have speculated that. Um, you know, if these natural resource crises become economic crises, um, that there's always sort of the oldest play in the politician's playbook is uh, jingoism, right? And then you kind of turn to nationalism and kind of foreign uh, military adventures and things like that. So I think there there is some speculation and fear that if these issues cause instability or, or you know, um, discord at home, that that then may then be sort of reflected and magnified on the international stage. That's, of course, speculative, but, um, you know, problems at home do sometimes lead to those kinds of problems being outsourced abroad, right, politically. And so uh, those are something to look out for as well. So maybe, so maybe it'll give China finally an excuse to invade Russia. <laughs> well, it's funny, you know, people people talk about that because there's a lot of farmland in Russia, right? And China actually already leases a lot of farmland in Western Siberia, where there is a lot of water, a lot of land, and not a lot of people. And so there are very serious thinkers who who actually uh, believe that that may that may happen. Did you know Siberia has been part of China since ancient times? Yeah, well, you know, China also gets a lot of its grain from Ukraine. So if if Russia completes its invasion of Ukraine and then China takes over Russia, it'll by extension get Ukraine. So then then problems will be solved. It's actually maybe a much better uh, military investment than taking over a small rock 
in the South China Sea, like Taiwan. It might be a little harder to take over Russia. I don't yeah. know. I mean, a, a wise man once said, never start a land war in Asia. <laughs> Thanks for joining us. <laughs> yeah, this, this is, uh, you know, uh, above my pay grade, right? But um, uh, in interesting uh, food for thought. Definitely. Well irrigated food for thought. <laughs> Hopefully we can also have some water for thought with that food for thought. <laughs> well, without the water, you're not going to have the food. That's true. Mm. That's true. Something for thought. Speaking yeah. of water, I'm I'm empty here. Could could you guys fill me up? <laughs> I know I've I've been drinking more water this this whole podcast. Just just in case we run out. Line. Yeah, yeah. Oh man, I feel a little guilty with my constant sous viding and watering my enormous lawn, and <laughs> you know all the shot glasses of water I pour out for my homies. <laughs> Seems like a waste. And, and also, of course, the slip and slide. I'm that's necessary. Well, I think if you invest in slip and slides, that that's the takeaway, right? Is uh invest in uh in slip and slides produced in other countries, right? That's where the BlackRock dollars should be going. Good point. Or maybe some kind of jello based slip and slide. Um <laughs> still needs water. Still needs water. <laughs> Well, Andrew, thanks so much for joining us today. This was this was very uh, interesting to hear about just more of the ways we're all very, very screwed. <laughs> well, I work on climate change for my day job. So, you know, grappling with that problem is uh, what happens every day when I get out of bed. So, <laughs> all but, but, but I heard work. on the internet that climate change is a myth. Well, okay. We're done here. <laughs> <laughs> okay. It was right, just well, your, good. your favorite myth signing off. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Andrew. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, this interview made me think of so many different sci-fi properties. I mean, you got Dune, Waterworld, uh, The Moon is a Harsh Mistress, a lot of Asimov writings, uh, Southland Tales. You see that movie? No. It was garbage. Okay. <laughs> One of the worst movies I've seen. I don't recommend and it. That it stars the rock. You. And that comes from you. Who You have like a very quirky taste in movies. The last movie that we all watched together was- Thermi Romai. Hey, that was great. Um, I'm just saying you have a quirky taste in yeah, movies. Yeah. Remember when Matt and I just quit during Happiness of the Catacurries? That was your failing. <laughs> um, we, we did We did finish watching The Room together. And yeah, but I that, remember, that was actually, I'm glad that, that I, I went through that. But I remember our friend Thomas, like after The Room was over, he just like got up and left The Room. <laughs> yeah, Southland <laughs> he, he Tales. He didn't just leave a room. He left The Room. Okay, okay. The, the Room. Yeah, Southland Tales is just, it's just unwatchably bad. Oh, okay. Yeah. Like uh, Justin worse Timberlake than, is in it, but like they give him a big ugly scar. Worse the Rock than, is in it. What was the one with Sean Connery? Zardoz? Yes. Wait, doesn't that movie take place in 2023? Zardoz? The one with Sean Connery wears that like singlet, Does right? it? I don't know. Yeah. Well, that could be the world we're living in. No, be. I don't think so. It can't because Sean Connery has unfortunately passed away. Well, there are some lessons from that movie that are... Still relevant today. Things I won't say on this podcast. Yeah, no, you better I, not. I have not watched anything from that except like a clip you sent me of like a mountain that like belches guns or something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was a flying head rock. Yes, okay. Obviously. Uh. Um, man, I the real world is so much more depressing. <laughs> uh yeah, this is this is crazy. Like there's there's it's like uh, just an 
it's a Gordian knot of trouble. So you just have to slice through it? There's probably some kind of solution like that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, it did make me realize how screwed Chinese manufacturing is, like in the in the much nearer term than I was thinking, you know. Yeah, but I mean, yeah, like how it affects power production and agriculture. Like there's just so many things that are are tied up to this. It's like how do you get around right. it? Right. So but but China loses manufacturing and then it loses money and it loses the money to solve the problems that it needs to solve. So like even if cuz the CCP is actually really really skilled at coming up with short-term solutions to solve acute problems, right? I mean, they've held off the real estate collapse for decades now. Yeah. And you know, they hold off the manufacturing or the they hold off the the water shortage crisis by rationing manufacturing, right? And they can also ration power when they need to ration water. So they can, but so, but like at a certain point, but like, I just never know what that point is because they always figure out, like, I'm always surprised and, and kind of impressed. Like there's always some way, often a horrible way that they're able to just like kick that can a little further down the road. Yeah, I wonder though, right now is like a very bad time for this all to be happening because uh, of like how badly zero COVID has wrecked the economy. I was gonna say like, we went through this entire podcast talking about all the horrible things that are plaguing China right now and none of them was COVID. But I mean, yeah, even the fact that they decided to just do the kind of like letter rip thing with COVID that they're still having economic issues because a lot of factories are like partially shut because there's just nobody to work because everybody's sick. Uh, and it's not something that's gonna necessarily solve itself in like two days, right? And it just kind of further emphasizes like how bad the advice is to invest in China, whether it's BlackRock saying triple your investment or uh, that, that article we just did this past weekend that was saying like, oh, the moral thing to do is to continue to invest in China. Well, you, don't want, uh, you don't want yeah, China to collapse, right? No. You know? was... But that's the thing, though, uh, Matt, like what you were talking about is like how the CCP manages to always kick the can a little further down the road is because they have a lot of this foreign money. Right. Uh, and so, like, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised to see a lot of things like, oh, you know, like all these foreign companies like Merrill Lynch can open a mutual fund in China now and BlackRock can do this and that because they need to get the investment in. Right. Well, I mean, and, and their solution to COVID is a good example of this, right? So, like, take how China handled COVID versus a country like, um, like you know, Nigeria, Right, like Nigeria had very minimal measures to deal with COVID. And they just recognized that like, we don't have a lot of resources, it's gonna happen, you know, encourage masks, get vaccines from the West where we can. And that's just how it is. Do Whereas- I just need to check, or do you specifically know how Nigeria handled it or are you guessing? I could have sworn I read an article about it in 2020. Okay. Uh, that's that's good enough fact checking. Yeah, that's that's good. I, I read it on the internet somewhere. Okay. but But- uh, here's the point, but but what China decided to do, right, is, is, oh, we don't want the problems associated with COVID, such as, uh, you know, the, the hospitals being crowded or the manufacturing being shut down. And therefore, we're going to have zero COVID. And they put 
an incredible amount of resources into something that is, uh, I would say not like a, not an actual productive use, right? Like, like mass testing and quarantine centers are not actually producing I goods mean, in the economy. They are the producing GDP. They are, right? But it's, it's not productive in the way that building, that, that manufacturing is typically productive, right? And so, so because of the resources, they, they kicked the COVID can down the road, down the road for three years. But they also did a lot of manufacturing around COVID. Masks, those full body PPE suits that oh, yeah. Abu Dhabi were wearing. Like, right, and they were used domestically. Kits, and they like, were used, you know, here, even, even when the earlier in, in uh, 2021 or 2022, when the, the US government was like, we'll buy testing kits We'll, we'll send them to your home if you need a testing kit. And so some large percentage of those uh, ended up being manufactured in China for American consumption. Yep. So it was actually a good can to kick further down the road. It's just that they're, they're now dealing with the fallout from that. And they don't have the money to fix that fallout necessarily if they lose the manufacturing. Unless BlackRock triples their investment. Yes. Well, I think there is a solution to this problem. I, I was telling you earlier, I saw on Twitter, it was Twitter, some, some scientists saying that in the universe, uh, the largest reservoirs of water is actually surrounding black holes. And if anything, if anything, we can say that uh, black holes have been uh, communism's territory since ancient times. I feel like that was a really long premise <laughs> to get to the punchline, but okay. yes, okay, it works. It could have been worse. It could have been me trying to tell that joke. So tell is me about Southland Tales. Oh gosh, so uh, The Rock is autistic for some reason. And uh, that one guy, I think he was in American Pie, he time travels. Jason Biggs? I think maybe okay. that's him. Sarah Michelle Gellar's in it. There's a corporation, was this an early 2000s movie? Something like that. It was by the guy who did Donnie Darko. Okay. And like he, that was so successful, the studio just gave him like carte blanche to- This is always a bad idea. It's, it's always a bad idea. Like Zardoz was uh, the guy who did, I think, Deliverance or something. Yeah, Deliverance, I think. And then they the, the studio was like, hey, just do whatever. And then they came up with Zardoz and Donnie Darko, Donnie Darko the guy came up with Southland Tales. And so there's a company that's harvesting the energy of the motion of the water- and it's called Liquid Karma, and like it brings the end of the world or something. And this podcast reminded you of Southland Tales. Oh, because it's something about like harvesting the motion of the ocean. Okay. Wow. Okay. Maybe we should start a podcast on like terrible movies. Or just sci-fi in general and stuff. Movies unwatched. <laughs> we watch the movies you don't want to watch for you. And then we can do like a... Mystery Science Theater 3000 type of Basically. commentary. Well, weren't there three three guys on that show? There's three of us. It's perfect. Loosely guys. It wasn't one of them like a praying mantis or something like that or like an alien. No, there like... were robots. Oh, they were all robots? Was, well, one was a human. Space ghost. Well, at least. You're thinking space ghost, okay. coast to coast. Okay, so I'm thinking of a different thing now. Yeah. Yes. Huh. I'm offended. <laughs> Clearly, you are uh, the, the the mantis guy, though. Okay. What's his name? 
Zoltar? No, Zoltar it does sound nice. with, it starts with a Z, though. I'm I pretty think. sure it's Zoltar. Anyway, we have We've lost successfully... The We've fallen so far off the rails. The, I mean, yep. it's the first, you know... Is this the first boss test of 2023? We did a top 10 we filmed at the end of December that was sort of like the first of And we published that on, okay. the, on the first or second. But just, okay. this is kind of our first podcast of the year. Yeah. So, you know, I'm glad we're setting the setting ourselves up for the rest of the year. Yeah, yeah. I really hope our guests don't actually watch the podcast they're on so they don't see how we're Or at least crap. turn off. The, the turn it off, as, as, soon as, like, as soon as our guest is gone, yeah. just turn it off and they don't <laughs> see the ending. That's probably good advice. Yeah, and if you're still watching this for some reason, my advice yeah. to you is to just not watch the last few minutes of the next podcast. Yeah, the slip and slide stuff was fun when we talked about that. Uh, yeah. I always wanted one of those as a kid. That wasn't going to happen. Oh, I had one. I slipped and fell <laughs> <laughs> myself. <laughs> so you used it once is what you're saying. Basically. <laughs> um, All right. Well, yeah. And that is a true Southland tale. Thank you for watching China Unscripted. I'm Chris Chappell. I'm Shelley Zhang. And I'm Matt Ganesta. We'll see you next time.